ages in the millions of years. So is that true? Do dating methods, do the absolute dating methods disprove the Bible and support a millions of years old earth? The problems with dating methods, I want you to remember this, the problems with all dating methods that are old earth dating methods are the assumptions upon which they are based. When you make an assumption about something, you just assume it's true, some, some underlying principle, even though you don't know for sure that it is, but you just assume it is. Those are assumptions. All of these dating methods have assumptions that they start with. And that is ultimately the problem with all of their dating methods. So scientists and mathematicians make assumptions all the time in order to be able to have enough information to solve a problem and figure something out. And assumptions are not always a bad thing. They can be fine. As long as you're careful that your assumption is a reasonable assumption and that it's not going to significantly affect the outcome of your problem or whatever it is that you're looking at, and it's not going to, like, because if you're wrong about your assumption, then it's going to drastically affect the outcome. And so you got to be very careful with your assumption. So let's take a real world example in uh, engineering. Let's say I want to design a vehicle that I am going to use on a, just a one mile straight strip of road and absolutely nobody uses it. I've blocked it off with uh, fences and, and I've maintained the road really well where it's paved and, um, and I'm keeping the animals out because of the fences. And I've tried to take everything into account to make sure this road is smooth and it's clear. Okay, now let's say I'm, I'm gonna, I wanna design this car to be a, uh, I'm gonna, where I can remotely control. I mean, this is a remote control car that I'm gonna be able to control from right here at this podium. And this is something we can do relatively easily, easily now in engineering. And so you put all these sensors on the car so that we can know what it's doing at any given time. Uh, I can know what it, how fast it's going and, and which direction it's aimed and so on. And so I start developing the calculus equations to describe the motion of this vehicle using all this sensor data that's gonna be coming to me. And I'm not even gonna have a camera on this car. So I'm really relying on all these sensors uh, that are giving me all this information that I need to have. Now, in order to make my equation simpler, I'm gonna to have to make an assumption. I'm, a, I'm going to assume that this vehicle will always have 100% traction which what we mean by that is it's gonna, it's gonna be stuck to the, it's not gonna be skidding around sliding. And so I check the weather report and I say, yeah, yeah, it's unlikely there's gonna be any skidding going on. And so I'm not gonna, I'm gonna I can take out major complicated parts of my equations because I'm assuming it's got 100% traction. This is an assumption and this is an assumption we make in engineering. And so there may be a few rocks on the road that are gonna cause a little bit of error uh, in my equations, but we're just talking about a one mile strip of road. It's very straight. So I can state with confidence that even though I have a, an assumption, I'm probably right. I'm going to be very close in my final answer. I'm going to know exactly where that car is with very little error. All right, now let's say I do the same thing, but I design the car 
with, these, with that same assumption for off-road use out in the middle of nowhere where there's going to be sliding and skidding and there's going to be all kinds of stuff in the way that, that, can, that can push my car off in its direction and make it slide this way or that way. Or it can be changing its uh, position even though it doesn't necessarily have a velocity going in one of these other directions. Now how likely is it that I'm going to know exactly where my car is at the end of even one mile? It's very unlikely. So assumptions are made all the time in science and math, but you have to be very careful about your assumptions or what you think is the final answer will not be the final answer. It's going to be way off. So bad, invalid assumptions, invalid, incorrect assumptions cause you to draw conclusions, to believe something that is totally not in harmony with the actual evidence. So where you start with your assumptions are a big deal. The problem with all evolutionary dating methods I've ever seen is that they start with terrible assumptions that we can actually show are terrible assumptions. And the big one is what we call uniformitarianism. And you'll learn about this if you haven't already in your earth science classes. This is fundamental to every single dating method that the evolutionists and old earth believers use. It ultimately comes down to this concept. The present is the key to the past when you're looking at geological features. So more specifically, here's what it says. Uniformitarianism is the concept that the present is the key to the past. In other words, the principle that contemporary geologic process, stuff going on today in geology, those things have occurred in the same regular manner and with essentially the same intensity throughout geologic time. And so the events of the geologic past can be explained by phenomena that we observe today. So there is no such thing as a global flood happening today, so you assume that never happened. That's uniformitarianism. You don't have God creating planets today, so you assume that never happened. So uniformitarianism only looks at what's going on today, and it says that has only ever happened. You think that's a good assumption? Not if the Bible's true, it's not a good assumption. But we can even show that even scientifically today, it's not a good assumption. It doesn't fit. And even they don't really believe that because they themselves say that things happen that don't happen today. And so we'll look at some of those. So is this a reasonable idea? You can look at so many examples that show you this is a terrible assumption. Here, here's one simple one. The geologists say that water from 41% of the nation drains into the Mississippi River Delta. And as the Mississippi River is rolling along down towards the Gulf of Mexico, it picks up sediment along the way and supposedly uniformitarianism. Over thousands of years, the Mississippi River has been depositing fresh water and sediment along the Louisiana coastline, approximately 500 million tons of mud and sediment are dumped into the Gulf of Mexico by the Mississippi River every year, 500 million tons. All right, so uniformitarianism, do the math. If uniformitarianism is true, then geologic processes and rates going on today have always been that way throughout time. And if the earth has been around as long as they say it has, then the Gulf of Mexico should have been completely filled up with dirt and sediment. 
This isn't complicated. This is common sense. So they would have to say, well, ah, well, in the past, the Mississippi River did something different. Exactly. Uniformitarianism is not right. You can't assume everything's been doing the exact same thing forever. You don't even have to have a Bible to know that. That's an unreasonable assumption. Now, catastrophism is the idea that most features, in fact, in the earth were produced by the occurrence of sudden, short-lived worldwide events. That's, what you, that's how you really explain the geologic column, the earth, everything is ultimately going to come down to major catastrophes that have happened. I could spend an entire uh, session just talking about the fossil record and the powerful evidence of catastrophe that makes up the whole fossil record. You need catastrophes to even make a fossil, especially when you're talking about the dinosaurs. So this is a much more reasonable way to view geology. And that, of course, is what we would say, you, how you should be looking at the earth from a creationist perspective, but you are just not gonna hear about this in your science classrooms. It's not allowed, even though it's the reasonable assumption that harmonizes with the actual physical evidence. Notice what Peter said, 2 Peter 3, three through six. Know, know this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lust. You ever have anybody scoff at you for what you believe? Especially if it's about creation and the flood, they're gonna scoff at you. They do it to me all the time. Just be ready for it. They're going to say, where's the promise of his coming? Where's the evidence for God? Come on. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Uniformitarianism. You don't see God jumping in and doing anything today, so he never has. Things have gone on the same way they do today forever. And Peter says, they willfully forget on purpose, they refuse to even accept this. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. They willfully forget that a worldwide catastrophe happened that changed everything. And Peter says, he just tells you, look, people are gonna have a uniformitarian mindset. They're gonna assume nothing supernatural ever happened. And we as, we as Bible believers should not <laughs> compromise on this. Peter warned, that's what people are going to think. Whenever you find that all these methods, old earth stuff, you start accepting all that stuff, you need to realize it's all based on this assumption that Peter's talking about. And it's a bad assumption. If you take creation and the flood into account, it changes all of it. Every method I've ever seen comes down to this issue. Now, on a positive note, some scientists have seen the light on this and are recognizing, you know, strict uniformitarianism doesn't really cut it. Like when we see major catastrophes like volcanoes and what they do in a short amount of time, you know, it shows you how a lot of stuff that we thought could take a long time can happen really fast. So for example, uh, it's long been believed that the Colorado River essentially carved the Grand Canyon over millions of years. And it's assumed by geologists that the Colorado River has been rolling along, uniformitarianism, doing its thing as it does today for millions of years, according to uniformitarian principles. But on March 19, 1982, so 40 years ago, at the summit of Mount St. Helens, a volcano, there was a massive mud flow 
And within one day, a 20-mile-long, 140-foot-deep canyon was carved. One day. Completely destroys uniformitarianism. So if you look at the little stream going through the canyon today, you might assume that little stream carved that canyon over a long period of time. No, it happened in one day from what? A major catastrophe. Okay, now multiply that time thousand, times thousands across the whole planet during the flood. The Lake Missoula flood is a well-documented flood from an ice age. We would say the ice age that came after the flood. Water breached an ice dam and 500 cubic miles of water. That is 10 times the combined flow of all the rivers in the world released within two days. It destroyed 16,000 miles of terrain. It cut hundreds of feet through solid rock, created canyons, carved 50 cubic miles of earth. Here's another example of rapid erosion like that. June 1983, there was heavy snowfall that caused engineers at Grand Canyon to, to push the limits of the power plant they have there and pushed huge amounts of water through the dam spillways that bypassed the canyon there. But it ultimately, they had to push so much water through there that it caused three foot thick steel reinforced concrete to be ripped out of this tunnel, just from water. Just penetrated it with pits. It, the chunks of concrete were just ripped out. It took tens of thousands of cubic feet of concrete to fix these holes that were created just by this water. Uh, so bottom line, canyons can form rapidly. They don't take millions of years if you have ca catastrophic conditions. The Grand Canyon is believed by creation scientists to have been formed in that way during the Ice Age period as well. I actually had the opportunity to go to the Grand Canyon with some of the leading creation geologists and study the evidence that the layers were formed ultimately in the flood and then the actual carving was formed due to one of these ice age dam breaches that occurred that rapidly probably carved it in the decades immediately following uh, the flood. Uh, so I could talk a lot about that issue, um, but we will not spend a lot of time on that right now. But keep in mind that this is just, we would say this is a catastrophe probably due to the ice age that caused this. Other evidence of catastrophe and how they can change things. It's been assumed that turning something into a rock, like a tree, it would, that's called petrification. It's been assumed that takes a long time. But more and more scientific evidence is coming to light that proves that, the, that how fast something petrifies is significantly affected by catastrophe. Uh, scientists have discovered that the rate of petrification is alter, altered by catastrophic events. So, for example, uh, there's, there's a lot of papers on this, but in 2004, for example, there was five Japanese scientists that published their research on petrifying happening really fast, happening really fast, rapid petrification. And this was published in the, in the secular journal Sedimentary Geology, and they were studying mineral-rich acidic water that is found in the Tatayama volcano in central Japan. This is in the explosion crater of this volcano and water runs over the edge of this volcano as a waterfall. 
and they found some wood that had fallen in the path of this mineral rich water and they realized, wait a minute, this is already totally petrified and it's been only 36 years. And so they said, well, let's do some further experiments and they found that silica petrification could occur in seven years. You can entirely turn something to stone. Uh, other proofs of catastrophe, polystrate fossils. These are single fossils that span multiple strata. Like for example, this tree or this one. And there's lots of these out there. So evolutionists and old earth believers assume that these layers take long periods of time for that material to be deposited and then even in between the layers, they'll assume there was a lot of time or maybe there wasn't buildup, there was just erosion. And then all of it has to petrify. So this is a long period of time to make layers. So how are you going to explain a tree that is going through all of them? Okay, what happens whenever, you know, if, you, uh, if, a, tree, if a tree dies, is it gonna keep, keep standing up for thousands or millions of years? No, that's not what happens. So this suggests all of this material was deposited rapidly in one kind of major event. And you see evidence of this, these polystrate fossils all over the globe. Uh, besides trees, you find ca uh, calamites that are these little plants and you find catfish have been discovered that are polystrate fossils. This is an 80 foot long baleen whale uh, that is actually a polystrate fossil. Only one example of a polystrate fossil shows that the entire geologic column could be formed quickly in catastrophic conditions. Of course, you've got dinosaur graveyards all over the world where you've got herds of dinosaurs, thousands in some cases, not even just the little ones, but massive ones that are killed by something and they're torn to shreds and all dumped. And we'll talk about one of those in, in the next session. And, uh, and so how do you explain a, a graveyard of these massive creatures? Well, that suggests catastrophe. This is not uniform, slow, gradual. This is something violent that happened. Many fossils show evidence of rapid burial. Notice this guy is uh, in the middle of his dinner and he's, these are called aspiration fossils where the, uh, a bigger fish is basically choking on a smaller fish whenever something buries it. How about this one? Big ichthyosaur, little ichthyosaur being born. This actually gets um, buried by some kind of catastrophe while it's giving birth. Uh, these uh, dinosaur fossils show a typical posture that you find dinosaur fossils in, a death pose. So usually when you find dinosaur fossils, you just find isolated bones or more likely bits of bones. That's one of the interesting things about the dinosaurs. They were totally destroyed, obliterated by what happened in the flood. But sometimes you will find the, the dinosaur, if you find its full body, it's very typical to find them in this pose. Their tails are curved up and their heads thrown back. A lot of times their mouth is open as though they're gasping uh, and they're drowning. And this is called the epistatonic death posture and it's understood to be due to death by water. 
this is a picture of a fossilized uh, clam bed that uh, we discovered in, in Wyoming in 2014. So these clams are fossilized, but many of them are in a closed position, which indicates catastrophic burial because clams if, will tend to open if they die in a natural setting. But if you find a bunch that are, that are actually buried closed, it suggests catastrophe. So these kind of examples, again, there's tons more we could look at. Disprove the idea of uniformitarianism. Natural catastrophes seriously affect all dating methods, including localized catastrophes today, much less something on the, on the scale of the, the geologic flood. And thankfully, again, some geologists have backed off of strict uniformitarianism. I was reading a <clears throat> college geology textbook a few years ago and they were talking about these assumptions and they said, well, we, we used to believe in catastrophism and the global flood, right? So then Hutton came along and said, eh, we need another option. I don't want to believe the, the flood. I don't want to believe the Bible. Enter uniformitarianism. And then it said, well, now we realize that's not really good either. We think it's kind of a mix of both. And so that's kind of where they're at now. They're acknowledging, well, okay, catastrophes must have played a role here. The problem is if you back off of strict uniformitarianism, you've now yielded every dating method because they're all based on this idea. The minute you accept that catastrophes can change the way things look, it changes everything. All of it could be very young. You just have to be willing to open your mind to the possibility, oh, maybe the Bible is right, which they won't do because they've assumed, they made another assumption called naturalism. They believe you can only believe that everything happened naturally, not supernaturally. You can't have God in the picture. And so if it only can happen naturally, then they're never going to accept the possibility of the flood or creation. But that's a bad assumption. It's another bad assumption. You, you, I, don't, I don't have time to talk about this too much, but young people, I, I wish you could remember this concept. In every science class you're gonna, you, if you're in a public school, every science class you, you're in, they assume naturalism that everything only happens naturally, that there is no flood, there is no creation, that's assumed not to take place. The problem is there is no, it's impossible to be a naturalist. There's no such thing. Everybody has to believe something unnatural happened at some point. Where do you get matter and energy from that makes up the whole universe? First law of thermodynamics says it can't create itself. Second law of thermodynamics says it can't exist forever. So you've got to have something unnatural happen. So the minute you, there's no such thing as a naturalist. You have to believe something not natural happened. The origin of life, the origin of genetic information, the origin of the laws of science, um, one creature giving birth to or morphing into something that's totally different, that's not natural, it doesn't happen. There's no such thing as a naturalist. We're all supernaturalists. The question is which supernatural perspective is the one that, that is with the evidence, that fits the evidence? And that's the biblical one because the Bible itself has characteristics, attributes that are supernatural. Humans could not have made the Bible. So that immediately gives us footing that they don't have. They've got nothing. They believe in witchcraft without a witch. That's what the, that is what is the respectable science that you guys are learning about today. Anyway, I could talk more about that. Let's move on. So once the assumption of uniformitarianism is shown to be wrong, the entire grounds for dating anything as millions of years old collapses.
But let's go ahead and look at some, some of these specific absolute dating methods. The ones that they use to say, oh, see, look, this dating method proves that this rock is 249 million, give or take 50,000 years or whatever. And these are called radiometric dating methods. And then there's also carbon dating we'll talk about briefly. So if these techniques are shown to be invalid, the entire basis of proving an old earth crumbles. So let's look at some of the fundamental assumptions in these dating methods. The second law of thermodynamics tells us the universe is, is running down, it's breaking down, we're running out of usable energy. Matter and energy itself is breaking down and scientists will look at radioactive isotopes and they see, hey, they're decomposing into other elements over time. And that breakdown appears to be constant today. It's at a constant rate that that's occurring. And so they've noticed, for example, that potassium breaks down into argon, uranium, into lead, rubidium, into strontium. And the starting element is the parent element. And it breaks down into the what? The daughter element. I remember learning about this in chemistry. Any of you guys, and then probably the 11th graders might remember this, but scientists can measure the rate at which the parent isotope decays into the daughter isotope with an amazing degree of accuracy. The problem is that these dating methods we know are not accurate when we look at things that are very old. And the reason we know that is if you use, if you happen to have, for example, a rock that has, say, both uranium and lead and rubidium and strontium in it, where you can use two methods, two dating methods to date the same rock, they never agree with each other. Now, usually what they do is use one method because it's very expensive, but anytime you use multiple methods, they're way off from each other by millions of years. And the reason comes down to these assumptions that we're talking about. So uh, again, assumptions, I'm, I'm not saying all assumptions are bad, you just gotta be careful with your assumptions. And so here's three fundamental, terrible assumptions that undergird these evolutionary dating methods that you guys are gonna probably hear about if you haven't already. For example, the uranium, uh, uranium lead dating method, this is probably the most prominent, the most often used dating method that's out there. Uranium decays down into lead over time. So what are the assumptions that go into getting uh, an age for a rock that has both uranium and lead in it. What are the assumptions? Number one, they assume that the nuclear decay rate of the elements, so uranium decaying into lead, the, the rate at which that happens has been constant throughout history. In other words, nothing could have occurred in history that could have altered that rate for a period of time. All right, now that's an assumption. Number two, no daughter element existed in the specimen that you're measuring when the decay began. In other words, you assume this rock was originally completely uranium. There was no lead. Now again, that's an assumption. Were they there to see that? No. They're just assuming it was originally all uranium. Okay. And number three, the parent and daughter isotopes, the amount of those materials in the rock have not been altered by anything except radioactive decay. So in other words, it assumes a closed system is the terminology you'll see in science. So the, the, uh, 
there wasn't ever any kind of process that added more uranium or lead to the rock or took some away. You assume this rock was just, has only ever been affected by its own decay. All right, so that probably already should tell you, wait a minute, that's, that's some pretty big assumptions going on there. And the older a rock is supposed to be, the more time there is for those assumptions to have been violated. So let's go ahead and just reason through. Is, it, you know, is, this, is this a reasonable uh, dating method, these dating methods that they're using? Imagine for a minute that you're, you're walking down the sidewalk and in front of you, you see a, a pail of water and it's halfway filled and you notice, okay, there's water around the base of that pail. And so you look a little closer and you see a small crack in this bucket and it's causing a slow leak. And so you decide you're going to do a science experiment and you're gonna see if you can figure out when this pail had to have been filled with water originally and how long it's gonna take for it to be totally empty. And so you take out your trusty ruler and you measure how many inches of water in there. Okay, we got six inches and you find out the pail is, is 12 inches in height. And so you continue on your walk and then you come back 30 minutes later and you stop and you measure the water level again. And now it's gone from six down to five and a half inches. And so you decide, okay, well, this pail is leaking a half inch every 30 minutes or one inch every hour. Okay, and you measure again, the total height of the pail is 12 inches. And so you do the math and you're feeling pretty scientific and smart. And you're able to figure out, okay, this pail must have been completely filled with water six and a half hours ago, and it's gonna be empty in five and a half hours, right? Okay, now there's problems with your experiment. You made some assumptions, didn't you? You assumed number one, the pail was initially completely filled. What if it only had say 10 inches of water instead of 12? And number two, you find the bucket of water was significantly affected by an outside force. Nine hours ago, a dog came and jumped in the pail and splashed half of the water out of it quickly. And it left only a quarter of the pail full of water. There's three inches of water. The force of the dog hitting that pail caused the crack to expand. It changed the leak rate of the bucket. Okay, then an hour ago, the dog's owner came back and filled the pail up to six and a half inches. And you arrived 30 minutes ago to begin your experiment. So was your experiment valid? Or did your assumptions corrupt your conclusions? You assumed the pail was completely filled, wrong. You assumed you had a closed system, wrong. The dog jumped in there. Radiometric dating methods fall victim to these same fallacies. All three of these assumptions have been shown to be unreasonable for the same sort of reasons. And we've got a book that we sell called The Young Earth that goes into this, gives a lot of examples. But let me just highlight a couple things. Concerning the first assumption, this is the equivalent to assuming that the crack in the bottom of the pail was always, it always remained the same, even though the dog's activity uh, affected the, the crack. Now, similarly, is it reasonable to conclude that the nuclear decay rates of the element, elements like uranium, the rate at which uranium breaks down into lead, is it reasonable to assume that has always been constant? 
Well, until relatively recently, the scientists said, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they tested these under so many different conditions. They were not able to adjust these decay rates by anything they could do, and so they said, these have got to be constant. Well, we do a little bit more investigating. We find, wait a minute, maybe not. For example, a team of geologists called the RATE team conducted research on this very idea. They were trying to figure out, is it true that the nuclear decay rates have been constant? And so they studied zircon crystals from a drilling site in New Mexico. Zircons are considered to be some of the oldest minerals on the earth, and they're very hard and very resistant to deteriorating. And they're also thought to preserve their contents well, where they're, they're safer from being contaminated. So they're a great, a great way to test this. And so that using the evolutionary dating methods, these radiometric dating methods, these crystals were found to be one and a half billion years old based on the content that's found in these. The problem is that the content analysis also revealed large amounts of helium. Okay, what does that matter? Within zircon crystals, part of the, a portion of the zirconium atoms will be replaced by uranium. So as uranium-238 decays into its daughter element, lead-206, it releases alpha particles that combine with electrons and it forms helium. And that helium then is found in these zircon crystals as well. So by the radiometric dating methods, the zircons revealed billions of years worth of decay if you measure the amount of the daughter products in the crystals. But the helium concentration contradicts that because helium is known to behave as what we call a slippery material. Helium atoms are small, they're constantly in motion as gas particles are very hard to contain, they diffuse. So think about a helium balloon. Why does the, where does the helium go? How come eventually it loses the helium? You think it's going through the, through the knot? No, it's not, it's actually going through the rubber. It's really hard to contain helium. So the problem is there's a lot of helium in these rocks that should have diffused. So if the rocks were as old as the dating methods suggest, billions of years, there shouldn't have been so much, con so, so much helium in there, so the high concentration of helium. It should have long ago been diffused over that kind of time and released into the atmosphere. So high concentrations of helium can only be sustained for a few thousand years, theoretically, without significant diffusion. So if you've got a lot of helium in there, that means there must have been a time in the relatively recent past where the decay rate of uranium was accelerated for a period of time and it released a lot of helium and it hasn't had time to diffuse yet. So helium concentration in the zircons indicates a young age of the rock. Radiometric dating methods suggest an old age. How do you reconcile this? Well, by understanding that you're gonna have errors with these assumptions, the assumption in this case of constant nuclear decay rates. Then there's the 2009 research announced by the European Organization for Nuclear Research. This is where the, the Large Hadron Collider is that found the Higgs boson, the God particle a few years ago. And their research indicates that the decay rate of thorium-228 in water, if you have ultrasonic cavitation, it increases that decay rate by a factor of 10,000. Basically, if you have conditions like the flood, it accelerates nuclear decay significantly. 
actual experimental evidence today that that happens. Uh, Purdue also did some research in 2010 that, that suggests that uh, the radioactive decay rates vary with what's going on on the sun and its internal mechanisms and so forth that appears to be affecting the decay rates of our elements out here. So these rates are supposed to be unchangeable. The fact that they can change at all, even if it's a little bit, is significant. It means you can't use these dating methods. It means there are conditions that we don't know about that can, that can affect the actual date of these rocks. Concerning the second assumption, they assume no daughter element existed in the specimen that you're, that you're dating at the beginning of its decay. So in our water bucket illustration, we assume the bucket was completely filled with water. Now again, it's, it's common sense that you can't assume that every rock on the earth was initially completely composed of only parent, parent elements. Now how in the world can anybody know that? Uh, you could easily have elements from different sources that come together and form a single rock. And, and we know that happens all the time. And we see that happening today. This has been tested and shown to be a bad assumption. Uh, how is it tested? Well, again, we see rocks forming today. Like, for example, when, a, when there's a volcanic eruption, scientists will know exactly how old, say, a piece of igneous rock is from that volcanic eruption because they know exactly when the volcano erupted. And, the, and so they'll know, okay, it's a few hundred years old, and yet the dating methods say that it's millions of years. Okay, so how do you reconcile that? And again, with this, this book, the, the Young Earth, documents a lot of these specific examples of where we know that the rock is actually young, but it's actually dating as being millions of years old. Well, the dating techniques assume the rock was initially completely composed of the parent element, when in many cases it wasn't. And so again, when you keep in mind what would have happened during the flood, it changes everything. Another factor that, of course, the scientific community won't even consider because, again, they're thinking pure naturalism. They won't even consider supernaturalism. From a creationist perspective, we know that God had to create everything with an immediate appearance of age. Things looked older, right, whenever God created it because he didn't create it, you know, take, for example, a tree. In order for Adam and Eve to eat the fruit from a tree, the tree had to already be fully grown. And bearing fruit, that's something that in a natural way takes a long time. But if you can include supernatural possibilities, well, now you can't date that tree in a natural way. You've assumed uh, incorrectly about that. So Adam and Eve, for example, would have been older in several other examples. So God could have created daughter elements directly not just parent elements. There could be parent and daughter elements in any of the rocks that he's making. So to claim that a rock was initially composed only of parent elements from a biblical perspective is a terrible assumption. Uh, so light from stars that are supposed to be billions of light years away, they assume that that, that, that light got to us in a purely natural way. Well, how do they know that? Uh, Genesis 1.14 tells us that the purpose of the stars is for humans to be able to reckon time with, for signs, seasons, days, and years, which means that light has to be to earth for Adam and Eve to use it. So that light had to get here in some way that doesn't happen naturally. Adam and Eve are not zygotes in the womb. They're old enough to be able to understand God's prohibition about the, the tree. 
Uh, Adam is able to carry out biology. He's classifying, naming the animals. They're able to reproduce and fill the earth. All these things they can do the moment they're created. You know, so a uh, um, you know, anthropologist comes up to Adam and says, okay, so how old are you? This is on day seven. Adam says, I'm, I'm one day old. No, no, it can't be because look at how big you are. All this evidence indicates you must be old. You, can't, you just can't be this big and only be a one day old. Well, false. You've got wrong assumptions. You assume that Adam grew to be as big as he was in a natural way. You can't make that assumption when you're talking about the biblical perspective. Concerning the third assumption, very quickly, the item that is being dated has never been altered by anything except radioactive decay. In other words, the assumption is you have a closed system. And so we assume no dog jumped in the pail and knocked any of the water out. And, and of course, that was a bad assumption. So to assume that every rock that, that is being dated has never been affected by any kind of outside forces, like migration of elements is very common today and is known to severely affect this assumption. No matter how much care is taken to try to select a good specimen, leaching is known especially to occur in lead and uranium easily, and yet that is the main dating method that's used. So natural catastrophes significantly affect this assumption, and these are not uncommon today, much less when you're talking about uh, the biblical flood and everything it would have done. It's simply unscientific to ignore these issues. Uh, one thing about carbon dating, Young people, if somebody ever comes up to you and says, carbon dating proves that the earth is millions of years old, you immediately know that that person does not know what carbon dating is. Carbon dating is only used for organic materials, not inorganic materials, and organic materials don't last millions of years. So they cannot be used for things thought to be that old. So get into a little chemistry real quick here. The half-life of C14 is 5,730 years. What that means is half of any of the carbon-14 in any specimen, a log, whatever you're dating, that, that was organic, living stuff, bone, half of the carbon-14 in that decays into nitrogen-14 in 5,730 years. In another 5,730 years, another half of what's left decays. So now you're down to a quarter. Another 5,730 years, you're down to uh, eighth, and you keep doing that. After about 50,000 years, we don't have the technology to detect C14 anymore. If you find C14, it can't be older than 100,000 years old. It's actually a great evidence of creation because you find C14 in stuff that's thought to be 550 million years old. Carbon dating, if you've got carbon-14 in there, that means it must be young. If you've got carbon-14 in there. So at 50,000 years, there's predicted to be less than 1% of the original carbon-14 in any tissue. So the dating method isn't even used for stuff that old. It's considered to be reliable up to basically about the time of David. All right, we're talking 1,000 BC, maybe, maybe the time of Moses, 1,500 BC, but anything beyond that, it's considered to be pretty unreliable. So notice, for example, what uh, archaeologist Brian Fagan of UC Santa Barbara said. He said, C14 dating is not infallible. In short, or in general, single dates should not be trusted. I mean, that's what the archaeologists are actually thinking about this. They try to calibrate it and make it better, but then that's based on other assumptions that have been shown to be uh, bad as well. 
All right, I know we're five minutes over, but there's something I got to show you guys. One of the predictions that we would make, if the earth is relatively young and humans lived alongside dinosaurs, we'd predict that there'd be evidence that dinosaurs were around in the not too distant past, okay? So we've already looked at some physical and historical and biblical evidence. There's also paleontological fossil evidence that we can look at. Scientists have been cracking open dinosaur fossils over the last 20 years. These are supposed to be 65 million years old at least, and they're discovering soft tissue in them, collagen, blood vessels with red blood cells still intact, DNA, skin, feather materials, uh, keratin, hair, pigment, soft, stretchy, flexible tissue. It's supposed to be 65 to 250 million years old, really? Does that happen? Like the T-Rex tissue here on the screen, they're finding that in the fossils. Nobody was looking for this because it couldn't be there. I mean, this is 65 million years old, so nobody was looking. So this lady, Mary Schweitzer, she finds it, she publishes it, and she's no creationist. And everybody's like, nah, nah there had to have been contamination. There's just no way. So she went back, okay, fair enough. Goes back, does it again, finds more. Everybody's doing it now. They're finding this all over the place in these millions of years old dinosaur fossils. T-Rex, Hadrosaurus, Triceratops, Seismosaurus, Setacosaurus fossils, all from the Mesozoic layers that are thought to be over 65 million years old, not to mention the soft tissue that's been found in other creatures from the Mesozoic, like your swimming reptiles, your plesiosaurs, your mosasaurs, your ichthyosaurs, and then they are even finding it in the flying reptiles, your pterosaurs. Soft tissue and collagen, which should have long ago decayed if evolution is true. Collagen and hemoglobin could last undecayed theoretically for thousands of years under very pristine conditions where it's kept cool, dry, sterile. You think that's where they're finding these? That's not where they're finding these. These are found out uh, west, for example, here in America. So C14 decays again to undetectable levels in 50,000, 100,000 years. So if you find it present in a fossil, again, it can't be millions of years old, and yet it should come as no surprise they're finding C14 and these dinosaur fossils too. They can't be 250 million years old. So this verifies the predictions made by the creation model. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take, uh, Tyler, where'd you go? Good. Don't, be, don't forget to write down questions, guys, as you, as you come across them.